Latter-day Contemplation is a podcast hosted by two Latter-day Saints who have found great value in experiencing God through walking a path of contemplation. The views expressed herein are our own. Hello and welcome to Latter-day Contemplation. We are your hosts, Christopher Hurtado and Riley Risto. Latter-day Contemplation started as an exploration of contemplative practices from many traditions to enhance our discipleship of Jesus Christ. We're by no means experts in the topics we discuss, but what we have is an openness to questions, a hunger to discover truth wherever we can find it, and a desire to share in the transformative life of inner peace. We love that you've joined us, and we hope that you find value in this community. Hello and welcome back to Latter-day Contemplation. It is our great pleasure to welcome Jana Spangler on the program for this episode. I'm here with Christopher. Christopher, say hi. Hello. And Jana? Hello. Happy to be here. Thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. I got uh, introduced to you. Well, actually, I kind of forcibly introduced myself um, after I heard you on someone else's podcast. You you make the podcast circuit. You're all over the place and um, very well known with, within these circles. And, and I was uh, intrigued by some of your positions, and I thought, man, this would fit perfect with what we're trying to do in Latter-day Contemplation. And as we looked for dates to record and all this stuff, we, we tried to dovetail it with an episode that we just finished recording last week on doubt. And we wanted to bring you in on that because of what you do professionally. Can you tell us a little bit about your professional work? Yeah, absolutely. So I am an integral professional coach, and uh, my specialty is transitions and faith transitions. So I work with individuals, couples, families who are experiencing a shift in their faith that is causing distress. And so uh, I see, I've seen hundreds of people in my office at this point um, who are working through uh, a big shift in their faith. And tell us a little bit about your background that led you to uh, choose this line of work. Sure. Um, so part of it started with my own faith shift that uh, happened about, started about seven years ago. Um, and it's been a really bumpy, messy ride. And so many of uh, the people who work in this field do, we make our mess, our message, um, the wounded healer, right? So um, I just, I'm a, I'm a person who just went after trying to figure out what was going on with me. And um, that led me to go into, to get trained as a coach. um, And then also to attend a program called the Living School, which is run by the Center for Action and Contemplation. Um, The director of that is Richard Rohr. He's um, someone who's fairly well known again in these kind of faith circles, but because he speaks to this a lot. But I did a two-year program with him. And there was just so much that I learned in that. And then I partnered with Natasha Helfer Parker, who runs a group called Symmetry Solutions, uh, who specialize in this kind of work as well. So just little by little by little, um, I was led in this direction to help people. And is your office in, in Salt Lake, in Salt Lake Valley? Yeah, so I have an office in my home um, in Holiday, Utah, um, and I see people virtually all over the world, actually. Is that because of the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, I was, I was, yes, I was doing this um, actually prior to 
COVID, but it, it worked well throughout the pandemic to already be set up to see people virtually. Do you focus mostly on Latter-day Saints or people of all faiths in different transitions? I mean, I am definitely trained to work with people in all faiths, in all transitions, but the people who tend to know about me because most of, uh, most of this has been, most of my advertising has just been word of mouth or someone hearing me speak in the, in the Mormon world, right, in the LDS world. So, um, so the bulk of my clients definitely are coming from the LDS faith. What's that like working with someone who's going through some sort of either faith uh, crisis of faith or crisis of meaning? What I've heard it called both ways. But what's that like working with those people? And what what is their primary emotional state when they come to see you? Yeah. So, um, what is it like working with them? I mean, that's that's a big question, but it's humbling, um, and it is. Uh, it's expanding because what you notice is that everybody comes to this uh, differently. I think we tend to flatten out people who are having a, an experience different than ours. So when we're believing Latter-day Saints, we look at people who are questioning or, and we have all kinds of ideas and tropes and, and because we're trying to make meaning of it, but we haven't really investigated where these people are and what they're going through. Um, and so we tend to feel like we have this, you know, one or two uh, ideas of what's happening to people. And working with people, what it has told me is there are many, as many ways and entries into faith crisis and ways to deal with faith crisis as there are people. So it's it's eye opening to the individuality and the complexity of what people are really experiencing. So as far as what people are feeling when they come in, that just depends on where they are. There are a lot of people who are in an emotional state of deep despair, confusion. Um, the bulk of them are tr are trying so hard to find a way to make it work because what they're experiencing, I always say faith crisis is an identity crisis and a relationship crisis. Uh, those are the parts that become really painful for people because they've had a certain way of seeing themselves and situating themselves in their lives that is now being threatened on so many levels, um, everywhere from an existential crisis to how am I going to get along with people? How do I, how do I deal with the fact that so many people in my community mistrust the experience that I'm having? And how do I actually move through this in a way that maintains my own integrity, but doesn't completely blow up my life. So um, other people, they've actually already made peace with it, but they just need some, need some, uh, some pointers on how to relate to others. It's, it's probably one of the biggest themes that I see is how do we relate to others? How do I raise my children? How do I keep my marriage together? How do I talk to my parents? Um, how do I engage with my faith community? going forward. And that's all while going through a, a faith crisis, right? Yeah. You know, there's something you said that reminded me of an off-quoted line from Rumi. I, when I say off-quoted, I mean on this podcast, although it is off-quoted outside of the podcast too, and that is, there are as many paths to God as there are people on earth. And so the, can we see the faith crisis, a faith crisis, as part of the path to God? A hundred percent. And I wish we had more of this view as believing people that 
to understand that what people are going through may very well be God-led, even if the person themselves doesn't feel that at the time. And part of that is because we don't have the examples and narratives to have people understand this. Um, and there are people who just need to go through a really, really messy, messy uh, path on their road back to God. It's like there are many paths to the top of Mount Fuji, right? That's saying the same thing. But I tend to agree. There are as many paths through this world and through our faith lives as there are people. You know, Jana, you bring up an interesting point. You said uh, you want to keep the possibility open that this is God-led and that we lack examples of this. But um, immediately when you said examples, I thought of Exodus. I thought of wandering in the wilderness. I, I just think of the rich tradition that used to exist at least and maybe to some extent still does but less recognized of Exodus and this um, this very important kind of rumspringa, this, this exploration of the world and where it might lead you. Yeah, I mean, I think it's there. It's there in the tradition. It's there in the Adam and Eve story. It's there in a lot of places if we start looking for it. Uh, but I think when I say we lack examples, I mean in our curriculum. I mean in the way that we talk about things in church. It's the way we talk about things in testimony meeting. We tend to not want to center this type of a journey. And that in and of itself is problematic and is actually squeezing people out of the faith. So how do we resurrect this idea within the faith as part of the transitions and um, journey of faith of exploration of uh, of exodus of being you know banished and brought back into the fold um, these narratives exist within the biblical canon how do we how do we bring them back to the fore again I mean I think the only way we can is by recognizing it and then by speaking up and using those scriptures in those ways to to make space for people. Um, because I will tell you that the people who are in the midst of it are usually the last people to speak up about it because they don't want to be found out. Something I learned is when I was going through some of the depth of my own faith shift, I uh, spoke up in a testimony meeting and outed myself in an effort to say, if there's anybody else here who is feeling this, I just want you to know that you're not alone because I feel really alone. And what I know that I need is community. Um, and it was amazing how many people came out of the woodwork after I did that. Um, people who I would have never known, people who were completely silent in about any of this in gospel doctrine class and Relief Society they're there. People are there going through this, and they're the last ones to say anything about it. So it, it takes not just them speaking up, because there is, an, there is a gigantic social risk in doing so. We can't expect them to be able to do that. But as believing Latter-day Saints, we can start to make room for that so that other people can feel like they can actually speak up and not lose their social capital. This makes me think of the quote that we dealt with in the last podcast on doubt, contemplating doubt, the quote from Uchtdorf, 
on doubting our doubts. Before we doubt our faith. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and tell me more about the connection there. Well, I just think that it's, it's a quote that may be misunderstood, that may lead us into this place of being less open to the possibility of doubt as a part of faith. Yeah, I agree with that. And that's why you'll notice people who are going through faith crisis don't love that quote as much as believers love that quote. <laughs> but what what people in the community do love is that in that same talk, uh, President Uchtdorf said that and admitted that sometimes the church makes mistakes and he gave the dignity to people who question that there is actually reason to question. And that is something we don't do very well, is offer people in this place the dignity that their life, their spiritual experience, their lived experience has brought them to a place where they came by this honestly. It's not because they did something wrong. It's because life brought a complexity to them. And you know, I, I've asked so many of my clients, did you choose this faith crisis? And I have yet to have anyone say yes. Jana, what, is, what, is the, what does it look like, pragmatically speaking, when you're counseling someone who's going through a faith crisis? I'm guessing that you don't have your own motives on the front end of, oh, I've got to lead this person back into the fold. So how do you, how do you approach a person like that? That's a really good intuition, um, Riley, because it's the last thing that we can do. And it's why I think we struggle so much with people in the faith, because when people come to a believing uh, member of the church or a leader or, you know, a bishop, someone, and we're telling them, like, this is what I'm going through, there is almost always a motive of we need to have you back in the faith. And what the person really needs is to be validated. And to be given that dignity that what they are going through is not, um, it is not a reflection of them being a bad person. It is not a reflection of them making bad choices. It is a reflection of their life inviting them into something and perhaps God inviting them into something. So with me, I always have that in mind. Like I, I give the person sitting in front of me, the dignity that their life has brought them and God has brought them to a place that they need to go to. They have to go there because wherever they are, it's where they need to be. Um, And then it's amazing what happens when we are able to just sit with and companion a soul who is suffering. Because the healing resources that somebody needs to get through a difficulty is something that they access within themselves when we bow to the the and honor the 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 dignity that is in their life and help them just feel heard. You said companion as a verb and wow, I love that. I had never thought of that as a verb. What does it look like to companion someone in a professional platonic setting? It I mean, I, I I think to being at the waters of Mormon and mourning with those that mourn, it's it's 
it's giving people space to just be who they are and to say, I see you, I hear you, and you are not broken. Do you consider yourself like a professional empath? I mean, in some ways, that's definitely what I do. I mean, I, and I'm also a coach. I'm also someone who is going to offer practices and uh, new ways of approaching things so that there might be a new way of seeing things that will help them do what they want to do. But half of what I do is also just helping a person gain their own spiritual discernment to know where they are being led. You know, when you, when you speak of them being led, perhaps by God, into or through, certainly through, maybe even into a faith crisis, and, and with Riley talking about tradition, it occurs to me that in the Jewish tradition, Satan is not seen quite in the same way that perhaps as Latter-day Saints we tend to see him. And I always point out that it's interesting to note that Satan is in paradise in the beginning, in paradise, working side by side with God, with Adam and Eve. And once again in Job, he's there working side by side with God. And I think that Satan tends to be, let's say, a figure that's, that's, more, that's, something, that's something that's more accepted as a part of us. Uh, something that we try to perhaps integrate in a Jungian sense rather than to push out. I, I think what you're saying is really important because it's one of the things that we have, have lost a little bit in the tradition. It's there in these echoes of Judaism, as you said, in the Jewish tradition. It's also there with Joseph Smith. You know, it's, um, I can't quote it verbatim, but it's uh, the uh, thy mind, O man quote of Joseph Smith that talks about if a man is going to be led into salvation, he must contemplate, you know, the highest heights and the and the darkest abyss. Um, it's in Joseph Smith's quote of "By proving opposites is man is um, truth made manifest." Um, there, we do believe. I mean, it's in the Book of Mormon, the opposition in all things. We like the idea of these things, but we don't know how to allow the discomfort of that to work within us in our lives, to synergize something bigger, something deeper. We, we tend to villainize the dark side of that and, and interpret that as us doing something wrong where the spirit has fled. Um, and I think a lot of that is just kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. If we're trained not to see God in the abyss, then we will imagine that God does not exist in the abyss. Wow. We, we've, we've kind of like anthropomorphized, ironically, Satan, who I guess doesn't have a body, right? But we've anthropomorphized him and made him a caricature of all those dark sides of the duality instead of just confronting each one of them as they come at us. Absolutely. Well, we, we, love, we love to scapegoat as, as human beings. Um, the philosopher Rene Girard talks a lot about this, but we tend to scapegoat all of the dark side of what is going on inside us to Satan. And uh, we tend to scapegoat the people around us. If I'm having a difficulty in my marriage, uh, it, if I could just fix my spouse so they would stop making me go to the dark place, then all would be well, <laughs> rather than, than integrating those things. 
the example of Jesus is, it can be seen as the ultimate scapegoat. I'm reminded of a quote from Stephen Covey, who says that anytime you think the problem is out there, that thought is the problem. I love that. Absolutely. We, we all tend to do this and project our shadow all over everybody around us. So, Jana, you've talked a little bit about your um, coaching, <clears throat> excuse me, your counseling side. But tell us about what the, the coaching side, the growth and development side looks like. Are there models that you use to help people reclaim a spirituality that really is the inheritance of every human? We all crave some level or degree of spirituality. So how do you help people reclaim that in the coaching side of what you do? Yeah, so um, the models that I use uh, to assess where people are and what they might be needing are informed by the work of Ken Wilber, and he has a bunch of maps. Uh, a lot of that is kind of based on a developmental model, and not one in particular, but it's kind of a an integration of all developmental models. Um, but it, the coaching side of me, what I'm looking for is where are they uh, in in how they're currently relating to their life, how they're currently seeing the issue that's in front of them. How do we define what it is that they're looking for? And what are the developmental steps and the ways that I can help offer new ways of seeing so that they can step into something new? When it comes to their spirituality, largely what I'm looking for in helping people do is to wake up to their own spirituality even if we're not calling it that, because I will just say that a lot of people, because we conflate this idea of religiosity and spirituality, when they start questioning their religiosity, um, spirituality tends to go with it. So one of the things I'm helping people do is reclaim their spiritual authority. Um, one of the things that that I'm informed by is my time at the living school with Richard Rohr. One of the things he's been known to say is that religion is the best thing in the world and religion is the worst thing in the world. And I, and I tend to agree. There's so many beautiful things about religion um, and we do it really well. We are very structured. We have such an amazing support for people. We have a program. We have a covenant path. We have this kind of spiritual formation that um, that is so good that the downside of it is you can actually offload all of your spiritual authority and just follow the program and feel like you've done it. And um, so many people, once they start to question the authority or question uh, the church as a structure of whether it really is good for their soul, they don't know how to listen to themselves. They don't know how to um, access their own personal revelation. They don't know how to listen to the stirrings of what is inspiring to their own soul. And the truth is that a person's spiritual journey in their map is, is written deeply inside of them. And you have to just uncover that and help people uh take away the barriers that will uh, that are dividing them from their own intuition and their own and and their own spiritual promptings there's a paradox to coaching here because 
you don't have the answers. The the nope. answers are in the person you're coaching. And 100%. those who don't have experience with coaches don't understand this and maybe have a hard time with it. And it can be, it's, it's interesting. My wife is a health coach. She knows that, that you know what you need to do to improve your health. But there's, there's this question you brought up of where are you, right? That, that's such an important question. And it's, it's interesting that you begin there. That is the beginning of contemplation. Contemplation is noticing. And so the first question is, where am I? 100%. 100%. And it's amazing how people don't know how to access that from within themselves. It's always, it's been more of, a, of an egoic journey of comparison with the outside world and with the structure. So without that, they don't know where they are. And that doesn't work, right? Because if, if we have as many paths to God as we have people on earth and as many spiritual crises as there are people on earth, well, maybe even more than one per person, let's face it, sometimes uh, it's, it's like that. We can think of it either way as one spiritual crisis that is our life on earth away from God in some sense, as, as much as we allow ourselves to be away from God because he's always there present to us if we'll notice. And that's, again, where contemplation comes in, right? It's just noticing. Then it wouldn't work. Of course it wouldn't work to compare ourselves to others. Absolutely. And I, and I, I just want to, you, you mentioned something I think that's really important, you know, when we imagine that God is always there and we just need to notice. This can be a pain point for people who are going through a, a, a faith crisis, because so many are experiencing a dark night of the soul where they are trying with all the spiritual practices that they've been given, prayer, scripture study, uh, going to the temple, um, fasting, all of these things, they are trying and they are not accessing God. It's almost like I, I've heard it said that it's, it's like God gets up and moves to another corner of the room. <laughs> <laughs> they don't know the way that they've always related stops working. And so it can be really painful to hear that God's always there. Again, what does that mean? You're doing it wrong. Right. And, and, and this is, this is part of what is so painful to a person going through a faith crisis is we tell them that this is the path. These are the spiritual practices. This is the way. And if you are, are not getting it, it's your fault. Yeah, this is something we've talked about. I think if there are as many paths as there are people, then we can think of those paths as, as modes too, right? There are going to be different ways that we can access God. And so they don't have to be the ones that are the ones talked about most frequently. They may not even be ones that have been talked about at all in church. That's right. But those are the ones that we're trained to, to help people with. So church leaders will always, that's the go-to. because And why? Because it works for them, right? That's why they're it, it and may even work for many, right? They work. It works for a ton this, of people. This is what we call the Mormon standard answers, right? Absolutely. And let's just notice that the people who get called to the leadership positions are the ones for whom it works. That's a good point. So that's what they know. It's it's what they know. What else are they going to know, right? So that's one of the things that I work with people on: is how do you reclaim your own spiritual practice? If if something is bringing you pain. That's not your spiritual practice right now. There's times and seasons for everything. So how about we focus back on what is your spiritual practice? How do we expand our definition of what that is? 
What if uh, pain is what you need? What, what do you mean by that? If, if it's bringing you pain, it's not your spiritual practice right now. Well, I'm not saying to ignore the pain because uh, paying attention to the pain is important. It's an important part of the journey. And in fact, the more we try to resist the pain, the less that, you know, the harder it is, we kind of tend to amplify the problems if we're ignoring it. So I'm not suggesting that. But um, there's a truth here where you can't just revel in the pain all the time. You do need to start to also reach out for the things that are inherently part of your spirituality if you are going to retain any sense of spirituality. So um, what I mean by that is you need to find and be able to notice the places that bring you inspiration and joy. So martyring yourself is not allowing yourself the dignity that you deserve. Absolutely. And, and it's, it's like anything. If you're going through a tough time in your life, you know, self-care, that, that idea gets thrown out a lot. But there's something to it. You do have to be kind to yourself. Um, self-compassion is a huge part of this journey that we need to have more of. There's so much self-judgment that is heaped on a person who is going through a faith crisis. So a lot of times when people are in these faith crises, they don't, they don't know how to answer that question, where are you? All they know is they're experiencing something in the moment that's uncomfortable for them and distress, distressing. So can you kind of outline, maybe not in a comprehensive way, but give us kind of a broad outline of some of these models where you can start to show people, look, here, here's maybe where you are. And maybe you don't realize it, but you're, you're progressing through a natural um, process that is not abnormal. You are not broken and you can work through this. Yeah. As a, sorry, as a philosopher, I have to sort of back up a little bit with the question, is there a process? You know, I've taught languages too, and there's, there are mistakes that every language learner makes. And so it's part of, it's part of the path that you have to follow. So is there sort of a path through this? So yes and no. Right there, yes, there. Um, well, we've covered that there as many passes there are people, yes. right? But is there some sort of broad outline? Yes. So that that yes, I do believe there is a broad outline, and it is um, where I have found this is in the work of a number of different um, developmental researchers. So. Um, one of the things that we notice, and there are a lot of people who have done this work from James Fowler to Claire Graves to Carol Gilligan and a million uh, other people, um, where they've noticed that in our adult lives, there tends to be a progression of things, of the way that we see the world. It's really a, a, a wherever we are situating ourselves in our perspective. So uh, what all of these maps have in common is that we tend to start out life very me-focused. If you look at little children, you know, if I cover my eyes, you can't see me <laughs> because I can't see you, right? That's kind of me-centered. As we, as we grow up, we start to move to a we-centered. Oh, I'm part of this family group. I'm part, of, and this is what we do. I'm part of this community. I'm part of this faith community. This is what we do. And what comes with that is often a suspicion of those that are outside the group. 
And as we continue to develop, we take in more and more and more perspective so that till it's more of a world centric view. So all of that's the broad pattern that all of these um, developmental maps kind of follow. That's very broad spectrum, but me focused, we focused, everybody focused, and then eventually to all of creation focused. Yeah, when you said world focused, I'm glad that you said all of creation, because let's remember that that word comes from it's cosmos we're talking about. It's everything that exists. And that's huge. And it's a cosmic awareness and consciousness that we're after. Yes. And and I would even say, maybe it's not even what we're after, because this is the this is the downfall. I have a love-hate relationship with these developmental models. And the hate part comes in this superiority of development. And this comes from our cultural expectations, our American expectations, with, which leak into our LDS expectations, which is that more developed equals better. And I always try to tell people that these developmental maps, Fowler stages of faith, is not a ladder to the celestial kingdom. That is not what this is about. Wherever you situate yourself is good. You have equal access to God at every step along the way. And each of those steps comes with inherent gifts and inherent difficulties. And there also tends to be, between these different places we're situating ourselves, some contempt might be a strong word, but there is some being suspicious of someone who is situating themselves in another space. So people who are uh, more we-centric look at people who are world-centric and think you're stepping out the si- out, out of the lines a little too much and you're making me really nervous and you're on a slippery slope of something that's not good. And then the people who are more uh, world-focused or you know larger-focused look at the people who are we-focused and they say you are closed-minded and you're not open enough and you're not this and not that. And the truth is we're looking at the um, the difficulties of the other perspective and the benefits of our own rather than seeing the full picture. This is probably the best place to make sure that we get this in the recording before we before we hit record as we we're talking. You said we're all right where we need to be. Absolutely. And that's always true, right? It is always true. And it's something that scares the living daylights out of us. Um, when we see someone doing it a different way from where we are. So the question, we start with the question, where are you? And no matter what the answer is, it's okay. It is. It's exactly where you need to be. And there's something to be learned from it. And this is the other thing we think about development is we look at this later stage and because we are so growth focused and that must be better. uh, We look at the later stage and we say, What are the steps? I mean, I have people come in all the time. What are the steps that will get me to this next stage? And unfortunately, that is not the way development works. You get to the next stage by doing where you are really well. Mm. You know, that reminds me of a more traditional motto where perhaps, let's say in a caste system, for example, maybe... Maybe it's not so much in a, uh, the idea of you have to get to another place, but there's your place. 
And even if that's not true overall in the sense that you can't make any progress, be where you are, right? Isn't that the message? Be where you are. Absolutely. And and this is the part that um, is so difficult in our culture because there are certain parts of this journey that feel so wrong to the center of gravity of development of uh, the bulk of where we're speaking from, from authoritative places in this church. I can really see what you mean by by the, the love-hate relationship. Models can be so helpful until they're not. Well, we can't make the model the new reality. It, it's just there to situate yourself. It's But so many of us just want to make it the new thing. <laughs> so this is the, the map is not the territory. Yeah. But it yeah. can help someone escape the idea that they're lost. Like yes. you're actually right where you need to be. And there's a whole bunch of other people right where you are. And, and you're not, you're not broken. You're not lost. That's right. And you can survive this. And there are parts of this journey that are so uncomfortable. But the truth is that life is going to bring you the discomfort regardless of where you're situated. It's just that people who go through this are definitely experiencing pain. <laughs> Wait, you mean there's no stage at which I won't have discomfort? That's what I'm saying. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. But I will also say that it is rare to make a big move between stages of growth without pain. If we're comfortable and it's working for us, why would we, why would we move <laughs> from where we are? And that's really where doubt comes in, isn't it? Because between any of these, even if they're artificial um, steps or stages, between any sort of transition is this idea and this experience of doubt. 100%. Doubt is essential. We have a complicated relationship with doubt, don't we, <laughs> as a people? Oh, we do. And boy, do we, re we resist it. We resist it a lot. We have so many quotes over the history. In fact, I, I don't know that we have had authoritative permission yet to welcome doubt. Because it's seen as the polar opposite of faith. It is. And, and the opposite of doubt, and I heard you say this, I think I listened to your last podcast on doubt, and I, and I heard you say this, which is the opposite of doubt is not faith. The opposite of doubt is certainty. And I really believe that. It's objectively true. Yes. And the opposite of a profound truth is another profound truth. Absolutely. I don't know if that really fits in. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it does because when you can you can be in a state of of crisis and um, disorder, and doubt can be a big part of that. And and the second that you adopt it fully, this is again my opinion on this. The, the second you fully adopt doubt as your identity, you're you're sitting in the same space of certainty that you cynically criticize in those who say, I'm certain that, you know, the church is true or God lives or whatever. So I might frame that a little differently because I think that at a certain point of our journey, doubt becomes an integrated part of us. And I don't think it's a bad thing. And I don't think, I actually think it's what keeps us out of certainty is to adopt a, a to integrate doubt because you are not going to be able to stay open and supple to the um, 
growth and uh, and further light and knowledge that I think is available to all of us if we are not willing to sit and live in doubt and let it catalyze us. Um, you know, I <laughs> I once heard this uh, at church over the pulpit from a, a teenager who had just come back from EFY, and they shared this model that they had learned there of um, of testimony and what that looks like. And it started with not knowing, and then it progressed through doubt as, you know, very low on this totem pole, and then, um, you know, being willing to, to believe, and then, you know, it goes all the way up to certainty. It, it comes up to I know is like the top level, and it was presented like a dimmer switch, right? So what does that what what does that um, infer that if I have doubts after I have this I know, then I'm doing something wrong and my switch is dimmed. I think this is a really good model for uh, you know for those who are familiar with Fowler, a stage three Fowler place where it's it's all or nothing, um, and where testimony is belief, that those things are equated, and that we have to be 100% convinced of our belief if we're going to be a person of faith. And what I would say is, when you hit a faith crisis, when you hit the dark night of the soul, and the certainty is thrown right out the window, we think, therefore, that faith has ceased to exist. When, to me, the reality is, your faith has just taken on a whole new element, which is, and many people feel like, oh my gosh, I am actually exercising faith in a way that I have never had to before, because I really don't know. And for me to now try to step toward the light is completely a vulnerable move of, I have no idea if this is what I should be doing, but I'm going to try it. Yeah, that's where I live. I, I'm not comfortable with, I know. <laughs> well, I'm glad that you pushed back because I didn't disagree with a single thing you said. <laughs> yeah. So, I, I mean, yeah. maybe you just expressed it better than I did. Um, but I just don't like certainty in general. Me neither. Absolutely. And, and I, I, but I think it is good for a certain part of the journey. Again, I don't even want to vilify it. Because I think you have to get to that place, right? And that's part of the so, stages. That I mean, it is. And it's a very... It's something that's in just about every model is that early simplicity, the childhood uh, images and stories that are just intuitive and projective and, and they inform us and they're so simple that we can easily adopt them. But then there's that first level of doubt and all of a sudden the world comes, it becomes a little bit more complex and we, we gain a certain level of nuance and, and we we kind of fashion ourselves as, oh, I've come to this new understanding. I'm, I'm a little more integrated than I was before. But just putting a ceiling on that isn't healthy at all. So having that healthy doubt always is, I loved what you said, it catalyzes us. It's the ceiling that makes me uncomfortable. You know, that's what I mean when I say I'm not comfortable in certainty, because then it gives the impression that there's nowhere to go anymore. And Absolutely. I know that that's not true. Absolutely. I know that I'm standing still at that point and that I'm missing out. Well, if we are a people who believe in eternal progression, how in the world could there be a ceiling? Exactly. So if, we are, if that is really what we believe about our inherent nature, is that we are on a path of 
constant progression, then how can we get to certainty? There always has to be, um, there can't be a ceiling. There can't be a place of rest. Not long term. <laughs> I'm okay with that. It can be exhausting. And as you've pointed out, there's no stage at which it's not difficult. But it's worth it. Every step of the way. And I wish we didn't have to worry so when the difficulties come that somehow we've done something wrong. This is, this is something that has leaked into our consciousness, I think, in Western Christianity, that I think um, so many people I see start to be really excited by some of the principles of Buddhism and some of the Eastern religions, because they, they uh, approach suffering in a different way. Um, that stops making all of it our fault, <laughs> but starts to normalize that part of it is just part of life. And that, you know, our, our additional suffering that we have more control over comes from trying to uh, do away with the suffering or think that something is wrong by the fact that we are suffering. I liken that to kicking against the pricks. Like, you know, things come your way, you're going to go through a, a field that's full of thorns. And it's like, you can either go through it or you can sit in it. But either way, fighting it isn't going to do a whole lot. So, you know, you're kicking against the pricks. The thing I love about the Eastern ethic, if there's a, a common thread in the Eastern ethic, it's, it's the idea of being in the moment. And just experiencing whatever it is you're experiencing for what it is, learning what you can from it, but not trying to be somewhere else. That's that equanimity, right? I agree. Very, very helpful. I read a large number of books last year on Eastern religions, especially Buddhism. And when I say a large number, I, I read a total of a couple of hundred books last year, and a good portion of them were on religion. And I've been thinking about it a lot, and I wonder sometimes, why is it that we have such seemingly contradictory views between East and West? And it occurs to me, one of the answers that, that occurs to me as a good answer is, is one from the Quran that tells us that God could have made us all the same, but he made us into different peoples so that we could get to know each other. And I wonder if it isn't our job then to create a synthesis out of these different ideas and to understand that they're they're not contradictory and to get and to get back into the garden you're you're speaking my language right um this is what the integral theory is all about is recognizing the um absolutely beautiful wisdom that comes from all people um and and you know through my again my studies at living school they talk about the perennial tradition. So it's noticing those things that actually do show up in different ways, pointing to the same thing, but being spoken about in very different language. But it's, again, that reconciling of opposites. It's bringing all of it in. The other analogy is the body of Christ. You know, we need all parts. You can't have the mouth without the ear. You need to have everyone doing their different function. And yet, our egocentric ways of being in this world tend to make us vilify the people who are doing it differently, rather than mining the wisdom and integrating what we're seeing from everybody and the gift that 
that brings to because if we're all creation if we're all part of creation if we're all part of God's creation if we are all children of God then there and if we are created in in their image then perhaps none of us is outside of that perhaps we've all been created with exactly what we need to bring to the table maybe we all belong it certainly seems that way when when you realize what a what a gift it is to have those around you who can contribute to you and to have those the blessing also of being able to contribute to others according to what's unique in each of us and you know what you said reminds me again of this more traditional point of view in which i'm wondering if part of it's okay wherever you are is that there may not even be I don't know, there may not even be this progression, that maybe that's not a thing in, in some sense, right? That that we each have our own distinct place and that I don't have to get where you are necessarily. Or maybe at least at least not in, I remember Covey's book, The Divine Center, no, Spiritual Roots of Human Relations. He does till, still take in that book the idea that we're progressing and that we're sort of climbing a ladder, so to speak. And we've talked about climbing ladders here too. When, when it comes to the Beatitudes and alchemy and whatnot. But even though he has in mind that we are climbing a ladder, he still recognizes that we're, we're on different days of creation, as he puts it, in different areas of our lives. And so I may be farther ahead than you in one area, but you're farther ahead than me in another, and we all work together. And we don't have to, I don't think we have to wait in any sense for everybody to get to the same place to be, well, anywhere, because wherever we are, we're right where we need to be. I agree. Well, this is one of those, um, this is one of those paradoxes that is, it's, it's one of the, the great paradoxes. There are a few of them that I, that this brings to mind, but one of them is this paradox of getting deeply into the acceptance of exactly what is, is so important to the well-being of our souls. And to be able to integrate that with still striving toward something better, to be looking at our inward self and uncovering more of what can truly transform us into more Christ-like beings. Um, and and how do you how do you deal with the paradox of both of those being true at the same time? Yes, thank you so much for rounding out what I said. So Jan, I think what you're getting at is really practical ways to approach people who are going through some of these challenges. And I, I think so often what happens is the pathology that we see from a mental or spiritual perspective in people who are going through this crisis is really imposed upon them by the reactions of the people around them less than their own internal demons that are attacking them. If, if we if we had the tools to know how to handle people or how to communicate, I guess is a better word, with people who, have, who are expressing doubts or, or going through a faith transition, would they be mentally and spiritually healthier right from the get-go? And how, what, what are some of those tools that we could have in approaching people that are going through this? These crises are are deepened by our misunderstanding of what we need to do because we are such doers. 
it's it's a so many of the things that culturally are our strength are also our weakness. That's just true of life. Um, so the fact that we are doers is a good thing. It is also really not helpful when we are trying to uh, deal in relationship with people and in matters of the soul. So uh, we've got to give up this notion of there's something we can do to fix you. We've got to just get you doing the things, the things that work for me spiritually so that you can come back to where I am. Because if this truly is a developmental path, which the evidence that I've seen and that a lot of these researchers see is that this is the case, you cannot put the toothpaste back in the tube. If people are going this way, you can't make them come back to a consciousness of exactly where, where they were before. So you have to let them go through this ugly part of the journey before they can come back to, uh, to something. But even when they come back to a, a kind of a reordered place, it does not look like where they started. So what's the most helpful thing, though, that we can, that we can do or say to that person? So we've got to stop trying to fix. We've got to um, just empathize and listen. And one of the things that Brene Brown says that I love about empathy is that in order to truly be in empathy, you have to believe another person from, from about their experience. You have to believe them when they tell you what their experience is, rather than judging where they are based on your experience. That's tough. So it, it it is. It's it's a really hard move, and we have it. It has to be developed. Some people have more natural and abilities toward this than others, but it really is. Again, that word. I come back to the companioning. Right. It's listening. It's uh, you know. It's the the saying. God gave us two ears and one mouth. <laughs> Listen a whole lot more. Do not be prescriptive of another person. Don't think that, oh, I've just had this wonderful talk that really moved me on faith and doubt, and I'm going to send it to you and think that it's going to have the same impact on you. Um, I've found that by and large, it's not the case. <laughs> so listen, give people the dignity, believe that they have the answers within themselves. And we one of the moves that we have to to um, adopt, which is so hard, is being able to see another person in pain and let it be and not try to fix their reaction or tell them that their reaction is wrong or that they're doing it wrong. It sounds like part of the answer is we need to have faith. <laughs> we need to have faith. We need to have faith and we need to have a higher tolerance for discomfort. We need to not see discomfort as, as an indication that we've done something wrong or that the spirit has fled. And you, know, you, said, you said we're doers, and we have the, the symbol of being doers, the Deseret, right? Earlier we said, and you've come back to it again, that we need to just be with people, right? This is mourning with those who mourn, and that's just a matter of being. So doing isn't helpful when it's time to be. It is extremely helpful, helpful when it's time to do. But not when it's time to be. There's a time to do and there's a time to be. And it sounds like this is the time to be. It is the time to be. It is the time to give people the dignity of their experience and their pain and not try to shortcut it, fix it, uh, tell them they're doing it wrong. Just sit in the discomfort of, wow, 
what must that be like to be you? Tell me more. And it's not just their discomfort. When they're telling you this, a lot of times we internalize it as a commentary upon our own beliefs and our own practices. And so it's very difficult for us to just put our ego aside and like <laughs> smile and nod if we need to or, or put our arm around them and just shut up. But that's a difficult, you, you called it a move. It's a difficult move. <laughs> so that's a tough tool to, to put in the toolbox. It is. I, I wish we talked more about healthy differentiation in the church. It's something that we don't do well, which is we love conformity. We love conformity. We love thinking that there's one way to do things that feels very safe, that feels very good. What is it Richard Rohr says uh, about uniformity? Yeah, I mean, he talks about unity and uniformity, right? Right. Unity, unity doesn't mean uniformity. There can be diversity in unity. Absolutely. And we sometimes conflate unity with uniformity. Absolutely. Again, this is one of those things. It's the, it's the strength and the downfall of correlation. <laughs> it, it, it kind of lulled us into thinking there's one way to think about things. Jenna, what about, I can see it can be, it's, it's so, it causes such, such anxiety for us when those we love are in any kind of crisis whatsoever, yet alone a crisis of faith when that's something that's important to us, whether whatever our relationship is, whether it be our kids or our friends or other family members. And we're talking about here a little bit about what to do and what not to do. I, I think, and, and you said something about sharing articles. What about this? What about being yourself in some sense? I can, I can remember that I fell away from the church. I left the church and that was part of my journey and I came back, but it wasn't, it wasn't because of the articles that my mother would mail me from the ensign that she photocopied and highlighted and wrote on. And I never read any of the articles. You know, I, I usually read what she wrote. I did read what she wrote and that didn't really bring me back to church either, by the way, but I can't help but think that, it, that part of what brought me back and, and, when, and when I came back, as you pointed out, it's not the same place. But it was just her being herself and, and loving me. I felt her love, right? And, and we have to accept, too, thinking of it from the other, or the other way around. Um, someone who's, who's having the crisis and, and others are, are reaching out, they're, they're trying to help. It may not be helpful, but they really are trying to help. For sure. They're, they're doing what they know and and that's that's the thing that we need to recognize is that even in our greatest with the the best intent of the wor in the world we may not only not be helping but we may be harming and so you know what you said the love i mean that is what uh it's the only thing that can energize those that healing process um is love but what if my mother's expression of her love was sending me those articles that aren't helpful? Then what? What? There's a paradox there, isn't there? Well, absolutely. And this is where we have to, first of all, it is not, in that example, your mother's responsibility to bring you back, right? And it is not your responsibility to, uh, to come back for her. Um, 
we each have our own way of doing things and we do need the grace. We need to give one another the grace that we are having our best intent when we are doing these things. We need to have the grace for other people that they are they are exhibiting their love in the best way that they know how, even if it doesn't feel like that. And the only way you're going to know that is to actually have the conversation. It's going to be actually having a conversation with that person and saying to them, mom, I love that you are sending me these, these um, articles because I get the sense that you really care about me. And let me share with you how that I am experiencing that. We also need to share with people so that they know how to love us better. And we need to have grace for the other person that they are doing their best and just accept it. If that's the way that they are going to do it, you know, we do need to look through a lens of love on both sides of this equation. I love that. No pun intended. (laughs) Yeah. Jan, I want to fire off a, a few rapid questions at you and just get initial impressions. Let me know what you think. Okay. Is there a place in your schema for defending the faith? So what do you mean by schema? <laughs> My your schema. practice, your understanding of how to counsel people, I guess, maybe even your own worldview. Well, those are two very different things. In a professional sense, it is not my job to defend the faith or sell it down the river. <laughs> It is my job to help people process where they are with it. In my own personal life, that is a very different thing, right? In my own personal life, what I find is that from the place I situate myself now, there is room for both defending the faith and critiquing the faith and doing them both from deep love. And and I know that the critiquing of the faith is, again, that's the thing that culturally is a no-no. And I wish we could get back to, our, again, the kind of the Jewish tradition. This, this was acceptable. It was acceptable to express our anger toward God. It was acceptable. I mean, this is what the prophets were doing in the Old Testament, is, yes. is telling people in power that they were doing it wrong. <laughs> Isn't it interesting, you know, we, we, we have these lessons about Job in Gospel Doctrine class about how patient he was, but if you study this story, what really stands out is how not patient he was. Oh my gosh, right? The first time I read Job all the way through, I'm like, 95% of this is Job whining. We, we, don't, we don't talk about that part. <laughs> and cursing God. Absolutely. Um, I mean, there's a rich tradition of this in the Psalms and Lamentations, and it's all over. Um, And this is a prophet we're talking about. This is a prophet we're talking about. That's what a big piece of the prophetic spirit is. Where would we be if Joseph Smith was not critiquing the religious authorities of his day? Where would we be? Of course. Where would we be if Jesus was not critiquing the religious authorities of his day? And, And I think this is a truth that I'll just touch on briefly. Like I said earlier, the leadership of the church is chosen from people for whom the system works. And when you are a person for whom the system works, you have an inherited blindness to the ways the system doesn't work for others. And 
we need to be listening to the margins. We need to be listening to the people for whom it doesn't work. There is a prophetic voice coming from people who are in pain. When it's working for us, we tend to discount it and we say, well, if they just did it the way I did it, it would work for them without really fully getting into their place and saying, wow, is there something in the system that was not made for them, by them, or with them in mind? A prophetic voice, you called it. I love that. Voices crying in the wilderness of the fringe. Yes. Yeah, and there's a place. And we we have to listen to it. There's a place for it, and guess what? They're critiquing and there and it can feel abrasive to the voice that's in the core to the person who's in the core but there is something so beautiful in it when we can notice that they're doing it from a greater insight of how we could be better i love that so yes it's it's both defending and critiquing the faith and there's a place you know there're different personalities there are different ways of being and interacting in, in the context of religion, some, some of us, I'm going to, I'm speaking of myself, some of us are, we, we criticize by personality. And what we're really looking for is, couldn't this be done better? And that can really rub people the wrong way sometimes. But the intent and the, I say intent, can I help it? It's my personality. I'm looking for, couldn't this be done better? hundred percent. I love that you brought up personality because different personalities do approach this differently. There are personalities that don't want to hear any critique. It feels like contention. They cannot handle contention. They think all contention comes from Satan when actually something new can feel like contention. <laughs> um, well, there's the contention of Jesus with the Sanhedrin. There's the contention of Job, right? Back to that. Yes. So, and then there are certain personalities that are born to critique. They are born to be able to see, and it comes from their own perfectionism. I mean, I think this is this is where I see myself. I'm a, I'm a recovering perfectionist, but what the superpower that has come from me torturing myself all these years is that I can spot a problem a mile off. So I have to watch that within myself because I can look at something and say, here's where all of the holes are in that. (laughs) And what I have to do is make sure that I balance that out with the good. And so that I'm not, I'm not uh, throwing pain all over everybody else, which I have a tendency to do. I'm just going to make a transcript of this podcast and read it out loud in the first person. So I'm going to read you a Brian McLaren quote, and I want your impressions on this one. Okay. Doubt your ideas of God while trusting God. Yeah, I love that. I mean, that it speaks to that integration, right? It speaks to the integration of, um, of welcoming in the good and the bad. And I just want to note that not everybody is in a place where it is safe for them to do so. So again, you have to be where you are. And if that feels uh, hard for you, maybe you're deep in deconstruction and you're, that's the place where you need to be. So um, I, I always like to offer quotes like that in context because we tend to hear it in ways of, if I'm not there and I'm not doing that, I'm not doing it right. 
But is that an essential part of the journey? Yes. And I love it. And I love getting to that kind of integrative place. Is it okay then to, to quote, I love this quote from Thomas Jefferson. I feel in some sense there were kindred souls. Question with boldness even the existence of a God, because if there be one, he must more approve of the homage of reason than that of blindfolded fear. I love that. That's very Merton-esque. Absolutely. I, I don't think, I think God is big enough that uh, God does not care particularly if we call them God, if we name their nature in the absolute correct way. I just think that God wants us to follow, um, you know, what, what, what we are being called to at any given moment. And be in relationship and with be, God. Yes, it's all about relationship. It's all about that. And in that relationship, that's a relationship between me and God. And so that relationship is going to be unique because I'm half of it. And I'm me. Yes. Also, can we also name that we, in our essence, are a, reflect a reflection of God? Well, then there's that, right? I am that. I am not outside of that. In this last episode of The Chosen, well, the first episode of the second season, he turns to uh, John, the beloved. Jesus does? Jesus does. And um, says, I am who I am. And of course, that harkened back to that scripture where God reveals himself to Moses. And, uh, but it's interesting that he uses that phrase of all of them, you know, instead of El Shaddai or Adonai or whatever, he says, I am who I am. His naming is individuality. And, and it's interesting that you quoted that in the context of my quote from Hindu scripture, thou art that. It's beautiful. Okay. I've got a word for you and I just want your impressions or your thoughts on this word. And I okay. might not pronounce it the way you want me to, and you can correct me. Okay. Atonement. Yeah. Um, at one meant, right? Um, yeah, I think that atonement is a double-edged sword. <laughs> um, at certain parts of the journey, um, you know, I, I relate this to my own journey. My... Um, my testimony for a number of years was built on atonement as a remission of my sins. And that was such a um, comforting thing for me that that very definition as I went through my faith shift became very painful. And now atonement for me um, is more comfortably spoken of as a communion it's a communion with the divine and recognizing the divine within myself and that I am not separate from that. And what that has done for me is it has allowed me to access a depth of my own self-worth and inherent goodness that was not available to me in the old definition. 
but the old definition was exactly what I needed at the time. So I think we need to not be so prescriptive about what that word actually means. And that is clearly available to you and present in you now. I just want to acknowledge that. I can feel it. So Jana, is there anything else you would like to share with us or our listening audience? You know, the, the only thing that comes to mind is just bringing together an idea we've already spoken of, but I, my deepest wish in the work that I do is to give people permission to be exactly where they are to um, be able to seek out the resources that are going to help you. Uh, and you'll know when you hit them because they will expand you. They will not uh, make you want to die a little inside. <laughs> um, but, you know, I just want people to learn to trust themselves. And my deepest wish is that we can find a way um, as as members of this church, to make space for a differentiated faith journey and to trust people the way that God trusts us, each one of us, with our earthly journey. I think we have all the models for it, and I would love to see us find a way to, uh, within the umbrella of the church, have a place for people to be able to explore these messy parts of the faith journey with their dignity and social capital intact. God really does trust us. He does. And because God trusts us, we can trust ourselves. Amen. Amen and amen. Well, Jana, we really appreciate your expertise, your voice, your contribution to this dialogue on faith and spirituality and to our community in general. Really appreciate all the, all the thoughts that you shared with us, and thank you for coming on to uh, Latter-day Contemplation today. Thank you so much. It's been an honor to be in conversation with you guys. Well, for Latter-day Contemplation, I'm Riley Risto. And I'm Christopher Hurtado. And we hope you have a blessed week.